This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis in for Ryan Warner. Criminal justice reform advocates describe this coming legislative session as a, quote, good time to be us. They'll be working with a Democratic majority, and their cause even got a shout-out from Governor Jared Polis in his State of the State address. Criminal justice reform is an economic necessity, a human rights necessity. We will help you lead on this issue. But what exactly are their plans? CPR's justice reporter, Allison Sherry, has spent the last couple of weeks talking to stakeholders across the state, and she joins us now. Hi, Allison. Good morning, Andrea. So criminal justice reform can mean a lot of things, pretrial policies, prisons, parole. What do you think will be the hottest area of debate this session? Well, I'm going to start with cash bail reform. This is a really big deal nationally right now, this idea that low-level poor uh, poor people who have sort of low, you know, low criminal charges shouldn't be sitting in jail on some bond they can't afford to pay. And there are two efforts going on with this with this topic right now in Colorado. Um, um, one is this big ongoing effort to put something on the ballot in 2020. This is big stakeholder group that includes sheriffs, DAs, public defenders, lawmakers. And this is a really big deal because district attorneys have never really been at the table, but they are now. Mm. And I talked about this with Stan Hilke. He was former Governor John Hickenlooper's director of public safety. He got the same job in the Polis administration. He's been working and wrangling all these different stakeholders to a consensus on cash bail for about a year and a half. And there's an opportunity there to make changes that allow us to keep the most risky people in jail the ones we're scared of, and then let the others that can be either out uh, with a promise to appear or uh, out with supervision to make sure that they don't commit more crimes and they also show up for court. So what's interesting is this sort of lumbering bipartisan process that could work, it's finally coming together, could actually get blown up this legislative session if groups like the ACLU or other criminal justice reform groups push a bill through very quickly instead of waiting for that 2020 ballot measure. And what does the ACLU want? Well, um, you know, to be short, they really want to move more quickly than than waiting for a crimi- uh, for a, a constitutional amendment proposal. They see a new Democratic legislature, a new governor potentially sympathetic to criminal justice reform, um, and they want to do something now. They're going to be championing legislation to get rid of cash bail for certain low level crimes. And you know, they say they're not opposed to this bigger effort, um, this constitutional amendment piece, but that that could take years, and they'd like a quicker fix to take effect as soon as this summer. This is Rebecca. Wallace. She's an attorney at the ACLU, says she doesn't want to wait till 2020 or 2021 for these reforms. Just, you know, more bodies out of cages for the low-level offenders sooner so that it's a little less susceptible to a legal challenge in this state while we get to um, a bigger bail reform package. It's going to take years to get there. But people like Hilke and the district attorneys are likely going to oppose this idea this year because they say it could undermine all their work that they've been doing. If the ACLU is successful, passes a bill to get rid of cash bonds for lots of crimes, what would compel people to come back to court? Well, you know, I should first say there's no data that shows that cash bail has any real connection to people showing up in court, Mm. um, contrary to what a lot of people think. People, the vast majority of people who skip their court dates do it because they forget about it. And there's one bill that's coming, um, that's already been introduced that would expand some tried and true strategies to help with that. One's this court reminder bill. It's really basic. It's basically that courts start texting or emailing people reminders about their upcoming court dates, kind of like a 
dentist or a hairdresser. This is broad bipartisan support, has a very good chance of passing this year, though it didn't pass last year. Um, the other is this bigger effort to reform, you know, what's called pretrial services. It takes a more personalized approach to handling people who are facing criminal charges. How would that personalized approach work? <laughs> yeah, it's a little wonky, but it's basically a risk assessment tool for judges, public defenders, district attorneys. It's a little like an analysis of every person. You know, are they a flight risk? Have they been in trouble before? Do they have a job, a family? The idea is to make some recommendations about what kind of pretrial supervision a person might need if they're let out, or maybe they determine that they need this person needs to stay in jail because they're dangerous. Big counties like Denver, Arapaho, they already have these services, but smaller counties don't. So judges and lawyers are more flying by the seat of their pants about what to do with all these people shuffling through their courts. That's where you see people sitting in jail for you know, three weeks on a $500 bond because they haven't had any, no one knew what they were going through. This bill would give some help in this area. So let's move on to the state's prison population. For years, the story has been all about how the population is declining or was declining. But that story's changed a bit. Yeah. So what's happening is the prison population has been stable around 20,000 people since 2012 or so. But the Department of Corrections likes a certain vacancy rate in its prisons to feel comfortable, and they're over that vacancy rate. Um, And there was a proposal last year under the former governor to open a second penitentiary in the state at the cost of $40 million. And right away, justice reform groups pushed back on this. They said not so fast. They want lawmakers to address what they see as the root causes of of the problem driving population growth. But legislators are basing decisions on whether to open a prison based on these projections, which so far are not proving out to be reliable. We're just saying that's even the wrong approach to the whole conversation, because in our perspective, prison populations can be managed. Mm-hmm. So manage it. So that's Christy Donner. She's the executive director of the Colorado Criminal Justice Reform Coalition. What does Donner think would help keep the prison population from growing? Well, she and other advocates, you know, as you just heard, say that the department needs to do a better job of managing this population. I heard a a really interesting number a couple of days ago that there are 20,000 people, you know, in prison in Colorado. Mm -hmm. 8,000 of those people are past their parole eligibility dates. Now, those are all they all have complicated stories. And it's not that all 8,000 should be let out on parole tomorrow. But I think someone like Donner would say, you know, let's look at this and see if there's other ways of reducing the prison population instead of just adding more beds. So are there any concrete proposals on that front yet? Well, one of the things, you know, in addition to sort of managing those 8,000 people parole eligible is to do sentencing reform. Um, And and one of that is one of those is that drug sentencing, there's there's some there's a drug felony charge. If you are charged with any sort of possession, you get charged with a felony. And people like Donner want that to be changed to a misdemeanor. For us, it's all about drugs, 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 and more drugs. Uh, We've been losing the drug war for 40 years. We continue to lose it. That's going to draw some oppositions from some opposition from district attorneys. Um, Dave Young is the Adams County DA. His office has seen felony case filings jump in recent years, and much of those are for drug-related crimes. But he says if you drop everything to a misdemeanor, you know, possession of any amount of drugs, there'll be no there's no there's sort of no incentive for addicts to get help. That if everything's sort of pleaded down with no consequences, what's the incentive to change your life? Where at least now, you know, they, they may have a deferred sentence on a felony, which means they'd have to stay out of trouble, complete the drug uh, programs that they're ordered to do before they can have that case dismissed. But if you start out with a misdemeanor, then the stick is so short already that what would they have to lose by going to trial? 
there are some talk of reforms in the other direction from the district attorneys. They they want to propose a bill that would get tougher on some sexual crimes. They extend the statute of limitations. It would increase the time that someone could report it before charges could be could be dropped. And right now, if they wait it out, if they don't, so the, if a kid comes to that person and says, you know, um, math teacher Jones said this or touched me, and that teacher doesn't report it for 18 months, the statute of limitations runs and it's gone. That's Tom Raines. He leads the state's district attorney's council. And I think I misspoke earlier. I just want to say their proposal would extend the time that someone could report a sexual crime um, against a child. Okay. There's been a lot of talk in recent years about getting rid of the most significant sentence someone can face, the death penalty. What have you heard about a bill to repeal capital punishment? Well, this is a very big deal and also a national movement right now. And it's definitely coming in Colorado. I've heard it's going to be introduced in March. You know, the Nebraska legislature did away with the death penalty in 2015. They actually overrode the Republican governor's veto, which is kind of extraordinary. You know, I think what's interesting about this uh, politically is it creates very interesting bedfellows in the legislature. There are libertarian Republicans who are on board. And then there are a lot of Democrats who are vehemently against. And notably, there are two Democratic members of the legislature who've personally experienced this issue. Rhonda Fields lost her son to gun violence, and his killers are currently on Colorado's death row. And Tom Sullivan, a newly elected uh, Democrat from Centennial, was his son was killed in the Aurora Theater shooting. And that was a case where the jury decided not to impose a death penalty, as I'm sure you remember. Um, Arapahoe County District Attorney George Brockler was the prosecutor in that case. You'll probably remember he sought the death penalty against James Holmes, and he didn't, and he didn't get it. But I'll say this. My opposition is different than you might think. I am 100% supportive of sending a measure to the ballot for voters to decide upon whether or not to keep the death penalty. So Bruckler opposes, um, you know, a death penalty repeal for personal reasons. But other DAs say voter approval may be a more rock-solid approach to banning something, something so large, than just a legislative bill, which they say could be overturned in another year when maybe, God forbid, there's another tragedy of some sort and there's a different political you know, movement afoot. Okay, so we've talked about a lot of big topics. Are there any other justice reform ideas being talked about? Well, there will be other things, too. Uh, There's a proposal to raise district attorney pay across the state. But I guess I just want to say that, you know, criminal justice reform right now is kind of hitting a peak nationally. Congress at the federal level has done very little, as you you know probably know on this front. Um, But they did just pass the sweeping bipartisan bill. It was championed by both the Koch brothers and the ACLU to reduce the federal prison population. And it'll be interesting to see with this political climate in Colorado, with the legislature and the governor, um, what they will be doing on this front. You know, if some of these reforms will get going, you know, what how Polis will handle all of this, whether they'll join some of this national movement or reject some of the ideas. Um, and that's what we'll be here to report. Allison, thank you for being here. Thank you. Allison Sherry is CPR's justice reporter. She joined us to talk about changes that could come to the criminal justice system in Colorado. 
The plight of refugees fleeing their countries in Central America is front and center in the news lately. Refugees from around the world face untold challenges, leaving their countries and adjusting to life in a new place. But they also can have great triumphs. It's something author Helen Thorpe talked about in 2017 when we interviewed her about her book, The Newcomers. We have a lot of headlines about how dire and difficult and terrible um, the state of the world is, but we forget that one of families chosen to resettle, they're finding a safe home, they're feeling secure, they're getting the chance to start over, and they find this incredibly um, joyful, and they're very, very thankful. Thorpe's book profiles refugees and their families at Denver's South High School, where many students come from foreign countries. Among the students she writes about is Marwan Nasser. Nasser arrived in the U.S. in 2016. He's originally from Iraq. Since then, he's become one of the school's superstars. And Marwan, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. In many ways, your life is an example of what's possible for a young person coming to this country. You've only been in the U.S. for a couple of years. You're 19 years old. You're co-president of the student body at South. You're also captain of the swim team, taking a bunch of AP classes. It can be overwhelming to be in a new country. And I wonder what's allowed you to really thrive in a new place. Of course. Um uh, as Ms. Helen Thorpe mentioned, uh, we've been through a lot of challenges and we don't have like the typical life that any other teenager would have. Uh, the fact that we moved here to the United States was a great opportunity that any normal person or refugee would acknowledge. And I just realized that there's a great chance this opportunity has been offered to me and at least I can do is just to step up and take advantage of them. Before coming to Denver, though, you had quite an odyssey. You're from Iraq. You went to Syria, then back to Iraq, I think. And then you ended up in Turkey. Why did your family leave Iraq? So in, back in, when I was born in 1999, uh, the conflict in, the, in Iraq was uh, heading towards even more complicating issues. And my dad came to a decision, which is go back to Syria because half of his family is from there. Just because it's safer for the family and go better, better education in general since the government was collapsing slowly in Iraq. After living there, there for 10 years, unfortunately, the civil war in Syria started. So we had, and it was actually much worse than what it was in Iraq. So we had no choice but to go back to my grandmother's house back in Iraq, Baghdad. And uh, but after staying six months there, my dad uh, realized that we cannot live there because there's no future, no opportunities. Mm. There's, it's dangerous. Any, anything you do, anything, anywhere you go is just not safe. So Turkey was uh, our option since it was very close to the both Syria and Iraq. And Turkey was basically the resettlement, temporary resettlement for immigrants to apply for immigration to the United States. You had to stop going to school when you were in Turkey. Why is that? That's true. Uh, the fact that my dad lost his business first, in, like around 2000s in Iraq, and then we moved to Syria and he reestablished his business, unfortunately uh, collapsed again due to the war. When we moved back to, when we moved to Turkey, uh, my dad has lost most of his money. So the whole family had to support. And that was part of what I did. 
So I had to work for three years until we get resettlements here in the United States. And your family, as we said, was located to Colorado, um, and you entered South High School. Um, what was it like to step in there for the first time, not knowing the language very well, um, going to school for the first time in a while? It was definitely scary. Uh, there's different things that was coming through, going through my head when I first entered the school. First, it was like a whole new different educational system. Uh, I haven't been in school, as you said, for three years. Am I going to be able to catch up? I was very, very anxious and like, I'm not sure. But as I said, like, I wouldn't give up my education, especially after seeing what real life is like without having a good degree in general. So uh, I will say, thankfully, South High School have the right materials for immigrants because they already, they, it's a, a big diverse school and they already have the experience to and know how to deal with new students for example the english language acquisition program that we have was very very helpful for me not only to introduce me to the language in general but also introduce me to the culture and also introduce me to the, the new system of education and you came to the u.s right in the midst of the 2016 presidential campaign. It was a really politically charged time for refugees from Muslim countries. During the campaign, President Donald Trump spoke about the dangers of refugees and depicted them as, as potential terrorists. What was your reaction to being talked about that way? Uh, definitely, definitely was like, it, the fact that you come into new countries is scary itself, and hearing that you're not very welcomed made me feel like heavy weight on the country itself and to be honest i just looked i just i just wanted to take this the positive way as possible and like i don't want to be like i don't want negativity and that kind of inspired me to excel in schools and prove that not immigrants are not like a heavy weight on the community but we can actually contribute to the community itself were you ever the target of anti-muslim sentiment not at South High School, not in Denver, thankfully. And in Helen Thorpe's book, she talks about an English language acquisition class that you took that you mentioned. The teacher asked you to use poverty in a sentence, and you wrote, war causes poverty. Uh, how do you talk about that uh, in the context of your family? Yeah, that answer came just out of my head without even thinking about it because it was from personal experience. As I said, my fa my family lost their business not once but twice, and I was as a I was almost getting uh, heading to the fourteen. I was almost fourteen years old when I moved to Turkey, and I was I was supposed expected to have a full time job. Uh, being in Turkey was the typical time like job during the day is about twelve hours, mm. and I was very like surprised like i have never worked before i was just a typical student who goes to school go back home do homework go to bed and then i was just a new a whole new world and i was i was inside of me i was like like falling apart i would say mm. because i had no choice i had to work because i knew that my family at the end of the day was waiting for me to provide so it was like it was a big challenge in my life that i'm glad that i overcame and it's just memories now. Just to wrap up quickly, you've taken on a leadership role at your school. Do you see yourself as a future leader, even a politician at some point? That's my goal. So uh, hopefully I'm attending college this fall. 
and uh, amazing political science. I'm hoping to step up and take it a level, a level, a level higher, and hopefully become a congressman or something around the government in general. Because I'm very passionate about the government in general. Well, Marwan, good luck to you, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Marwan Nasser was a refugee originally from Iraq. He's 19 and a senior at South High School, where he plays a leadership role there. A somber note now about the National Western Stock Show that's underway in Denver. A 25-year-old bull rider died last night from injuries during the competition. There'll be a video tribute to Mason Lowe tonight in the arena. The professional bull rider's CEO tweeted, quote, heartfelt condolences and deepest sympathies to Mason's wife, Abby, and his family. The National Western Stock Show is more than the rodeo. It features all types of farm animals and even more exotic ones like zebus. The breed originated out of India and Asia. They date back to 6,000 B.C., so they're one of the oldest breeds of cattle. That's Julie Hughes of Pueblo. She raises and competes with the humpbacked cattle breed. Hughes says zebus are more docile than other types of cattle, and the miniature zebus eat about a third less than a regular-sized cow. They're just a really fantastic breed. They're very easy to work with. They're great for kids as well because they are a smaller breed. But people just come by and they just they fall in love with them. They, they think they're just the neatest things. And then once they learn a little bit more about them, they really appreciate the breed and what they have to offer. Zebus are raised for milk, for meat, and in Julie Hughes' case, just for show. Yesterday, one of her zebus took home the top prize at the stock show's miniature zebu competition. For our grand champions here, we have a lot of variation in these two steers. We talked about it in their class. For me, I'm going to use the steer that gets around the arena for me the best with flexibility in those hind legs in the front. I really like this steer. Congratulations to you, sir. Grand champions here, 5956, Julie Hughes, Pueblo and get this, the zebu's hump is an important part of the competition. Hughes says the judges look at hump size, shape, and placement. We'll have a slideshow of the zebu's later today on CPR.org. The National Western Stock Show runs through st- Sunday, January 27th. And up next, she calls herself a red diaper baby. What it's like to be blacklisted. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In the newest episode of The Playlist League, a new podcast from CPR's Open Air, host Jeremy Peterson, Alicia Sweeney, Bruce Trujillo, and me, Jesse Witten, compete to build the ultimate New Year's playlist. We're finally able to restart. We're finally able to... But of course, time is a construct. What's not? <laughs> Do we want to get into that? Yeah, we're going to build a playlist. The Playlist League. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. And I'm Ryan Warner. The Hollywood blacklist began in 1947 when 10 writers and directors were accused of having ties to the Communist Party. One by one, they were called to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, led by Congressman J. Parnell Thomas of New Jersey. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It's unfortunate and tragic that I have to teach this committee the that's basic principles the of Americanism. That's not the question. The question is, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I'm framing my answer in the only way in which any American citizen can frame his then answer you denied, to the question then you, invades his 
absolutely invade Then you deny, you you refuse to answer that question. Is that correct? I have told you that I will offer my beliefs, my affiliations, and everything else to the American public, and they will know where I stand, as they do from what I have written. Stand away from the stand. For Americanism for many years, and I shall stand away from the stand. Fight for the Bill of Rights, which I'll stand to destroy. Stand away from the stand. That was screenwriter John Howard Lawson. He and the rest of the Hollywood Ten were sentenced to a year in jail for contempt of Congress, and their careers were sidelined. The Red Scare was on, and dozens of entertainers were blacklisted, including both parents of our next guest, Lisa Guilford of Denver. She calls herself a red diaper baby. Guilford is a former Colorado film commissioner, and she's working on a documentary about her mother. And welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Your parents were both actors. Your mother, Madeline Lee, had been a child actress in New York, performed on Broadway, on radio. In 1949, she married your stepfather, Jack Guilford, who became a well-known character actor in the 1960s. Before we get to the blacklist, just tell us briefly about their careers. Well, my mother had started on Broadway as Tiny Tim. She was four years old. She didn't even read by then, but the real Tiny Tim was killed the night before opening on the Elevated in New York. And my mother was sitting in the front row, and she had beautiful blonde hair, and she became Tiny Tim. Oh, my goodness. And she worked in radio. Of course, radio was very big in those days. She worked in radio and on Broadway until she was like 15, 16 years old. And so my uh, stepfather, Jack, worked his way up. In those days, he only had vaudeville. So maybe you did six, seven shows a day. You had Uncle Milty, Milton Burl. You had Frank Sinatra. They all were doing vaudeville. There wasn't any TV. And Jack got his start that way in what I have to imagine is just an exhausting pace. Six shows a day. Yeah. And where did his career go after vaudeville? It was interesting. His career went to live theater because he was an actor. And in those days, there was something called the music tents all over the East Coast and Michigan and places. And they employed so many actors, so many good actors. So Jack was able to work as a stage actor and do his comedy routine. He did his comedy routine at very early on at a place called Cafe Society in Manhattan. And he roomed with Billie Holiday. Do you remember him telling you jokes? No, he was uh, – comedians are very shy at home. Huh. But when people would come over, he did – he started by doing imitations, Rudy Valley, Charlie Chaplin. So he did facial imitations. People would come over and say, do Rudy Valley or do this person or that huh. person. But when he was home, he was painfully shy and quiet, lovely, lovely person. But at home, comedians – don't tell jokes to their family. <laughs> they were also known, your parents, for their social and political activism. Yes, actually, my mother more than, than Jack to begin with. She was part of the Lincoln Brigade early on. And at 14, she was organizing her all-girls high school where Carl Reiner's wife went with her, and they were organizing to show people about fascism in Europe. At 14 years old, she was a born organizer. It sounds like she might have gotten your father more into the political activism. Absolutely. She hired, hired, I use that term loosely because nobody got paid at the political benefits. Uh, She hired an unknown, very little known actor 
comedian named Jack Guilford to perform at progressive liberal parties, mostly in New York, and fell madly in love with him and ran away with him. And they both at least took a look at communism and they how, definitely did. how it might solve the ills of the world. Actually, my brothers and I have been talking about whether they were card-carrying members of the Communist Party. Mm. I don't know and I don't care because communism is not illegal in the United States and it wasn't then. It was not illegal to be a communist. It probably was illegal to overthrow the government violently. But when they asked my father years later, did you want to overthrow the government violently? He said, no, just gently. (laughs) In 1953, the dancer and choreographer Jerome Robbins, probably best known for his work on West Side Story, was called to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, and he named names, including your mother's. He said that he had been a member of the Communist Party and that your mother was as well. It sounds like this is still the fodder for debate in your family. But your mother was interviewed about this for a PBS documentary about Robbins. Let's listen to that. Someone called me and said, put on your radio, Jerry Robbins is naming you. And um, our phone didn't ring for three months after that. That's how scared people were, figuring the FBI had my phone tapped. And we did not have any TV or film work. And we managed on mostly on unemployment insurance. My goodness, you sound so much like your mom. I look like her too. What do you remember about that time? I remember being followed to school. Tuesdays was our day. The FBI followed my brothers and I to school. We went to school at Little Red Schoolhouse in Greenwich Village. It was about half a mile down Bleecker Street, and they would follow us. And when I'd come home, I'd say, hey, Ma, they followed us. And I was like six, seven years old, and she goes, yeah, it's okay. So you got an escort. What have you learned since about why the heck they'd be following the kids? If you ask me what I've learned in retrospect, I probably have a little of that PTSD going, you know, because I haven't really thought about it. But when the doorbell would ring in the afternoon and I was home, my mother would scream from the other room, don't answer it. But if you do, I'm the babysitter. Now, first of all, your mother's just lied. And you know you're not supposed to lie. And second of all, the doorbell ringing was such an a horrible experience because you hear things. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have, you know, internet or anything. So you heard your parents on landlines and you would hear, uh, oh, I saw so-and-so on the unemployment. Oh, my God, so-and-so just moved to Mexico. Oh, my God, so-and-so's in jail. You would hear as a child. These were the conversations that you would hear on the telephone. And so... You didn't know really what your parents had done that was wrong because they're your parents and you love them. But you kind of felt like a pariah in a a situation that you didn't know. And now I look back and I say, my God, the government of the United States went haywire. After Robin's testimony, your parents expected that they too would be subpoenaed by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, But I understand that your mother did everything she could to avoid the process server. Yes. Like? Like live on Fire Island in the summertime. Everybody who went to Fire Island in the summertime was 
probably red or communist or liberal. I mean, it had good people that never got blacklisted like Carl Reiner and Norman Lear, but it also had people like my mother. And Fire Island had no cars and nobody wore shoes. So if you were on Fire Island and somebody got off the ferry and they were wearing shoes, they were probably a subpoena server. And this also explains why your mom would have said things like, if there's someone at the door, tell them I'm the babysitter. Yeah, because you just, you wanted, they tried to serve uh, Jack many times. I mean, they tried everything to serve people because they wanted to get them to name names. I think the process server eventually found your mom on Fire Island. He found her the third she, Dolores Scotty, was wearing shoes. And we were coming home from the beach, and Carl Reiner came running out of his bungalow, and he said, Madeline, Madeline, she's on the island. And we were walking home. I was having my little brother in the wagon, and my mother had my little infant brother Sam in her arms. And she approached our little bungalow, and the subpoena service said, Madeline Lee. And my mother said, get off the property. You are trespassing. And she took my little brother Sam, her infant son, and kind of flung him at the subpoena server. So to this day, we say my brother Sam was probably uh, made subversive at a very early age. <laughs> that he was actually the one served. Yes. Our guest is Lisa Guilford, former Colorado Film Commissioner. We're talking about her parents, Jack and Madeline Guilford. They were both actors and in the 1950s, both accused of being communists and blacklisted. Lisa is working on a film about it. In August of 1955, your mother went before the committee in a New York courtroom. She was asked if she knew members of the Communist Party in the unions in particular, so Actors' Equity and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. In 2017, you and others read from the transcript to mark the 70th anniversary of the Hollywood Blacklist. Let's listen to your mother's defiant answer to the committee's questioning. I am declining on the basis of the First Amendment that you are prying into my personal affairs, beliefs, and opinions, and on the basis of the Fourth Amendment that this is an illegal search and seizure of my property and deprivation by due process of the law of the only thing I have to sell in this industry, my talent and my good name. I also decline on the basis of the Eighth Amendment that this is cruel and unusual punishment that you are inflicting without due process of law and on the basis of the Fifth Amendment that you may not compel me to be a witness against myself. This is like a game of tag where you try to be as candid as possible and three congressmen are standing there waiting to say you waived your privilege. That is not fair. You spoke of being candid. And so let me ask you a candid question. Are you a member of the Communist Party? You know, every November I go into a little booth... And I mark a secret ballot, and I prize that very highly as part of the American way of life. And I believe that that question relates strictly to that. Most people know from my public activities, and as you can see, I am a very talkative person and very willing to state my opinion, but not, not under compulsion and to a nefarious purpose on the part of this committee. That's Lisa Guilford reading the words of her mother, Madeline Lee, before the House Un-American Activities Committee. How was it to bring life to those words? 
I hadn't obviously been there when she did that originally. And that last part, she says, I am not Joan of Arc. Recant is not part of my vocabulary. (laughs) And when you think about my mother, she had three of us under the age of 10. My father was blacklisted, but it's very important, Ryan, that you understand that the New York people that were brought before HUAC, when Senator McCarthy said, hey, let's go to New York, let's get some more commies, 23 people testified, 22 did not name names, 22 did not recant, only one, and he never worked again, because it's very important to know that my father was able to work in the theater. Equity as a union, never blacklisted. As a matter of fact, there that, was that a, was in contrast, I think you're saying, to the screen actors. SAG, which was run, of course, by our friend Ronald Reagan at that time. He was the head of SAG. But equity had, a, had it in the contract. You could not blacklist. So when they would picket my father, which they did for the Metropolitan Opera, when they would picket him when he was in Flatermouse, Mr. Bing, who ran the opera, would come out and say, we in the theater do not blacklist. So my father was able, like a lot of people weren't, to maintain his sense of decency and how he felt about himself because he didn't make much money, but he always worked. Did your uh, father, did Jack Guilford ever have to testify? You know, I wish I could answer that question. My brother and I fight about it all the time. I think he was set to testify, and whatever year it was, he was in Charlie's Aunt in Hyannisport, and I think he got out of it. Hmm. I don't know, but of course we know how he would testify. And I think it's important to know that the people in New York all had the same attorney. His name was Leonard Boudin. Leonard would come to our house every single night with all these people, and he would rehearse, rehearse, rehearse how they could work against HUAC being so nasty. In their testimony. In their testimony. My goodness. I want to play a wonderful clip of your stepfather doing a public service announcement Uh on television, encouraging people to read. Uh, It was sponsored by the American Library Association and the National Book Committee. It's from the 1960s, but um, it's just surprisingly relevant today. This is a rectangular, mind-filling word containing whatchamacallit. Called a book. B-O-O-K book. To read. Read? Does anybody still do that old-fashioned chore in these modern days of television, radio, moving pictures, battery power ponies and dolls that snort? You betcha. There's a whole lot of reading going on behind our backs. Done, for instance, by quarterbacks. Like why a tittle is not afraid to tackle a book. And Ricky Nelson, who can rock it, studies all about the rocket from a book. And you all remember young Abe Lincoln. He read books and became president the American way. So don't be a blockhead, know-nothing, never-reading, uninformed Pinocchio of a child. For heaven's sake, read, read. That rhymes with lead, which is what you'll do if you read a fairy tale, how to sail, science fiction, English sticks, and European history. I mean, who cares about Abraham Lincoln if Ricky Nelson is reading? Cool, right? Oh, thank you for that. That was a gift. I haven't heard that. But don't you think it's a little ironic that Jack Guilford uh, was the spokesman for the Cracker Jacks as most people who are of my age and a little younger, Cracker Jack Man. And if people see him, even now, they say, oh, he was the Cracker Jack Man. There was nothing more American than Cracker Jacks. He died in 1990. Your mother died in 2008. Were they bitter about the blacklist and the effect that it had on their lives? I, I don't think I'd use the word bitter, but did they ever forget? 
No. And what they instilled in us as children then going forward was this 11th commandment, thou shalt not think. And most people don't think about that, but to us, even the children of blacklisted actors who finked, like Burl Ives and Lee J. Cobb, Lee J. Cobb especially, I couldn't talk to his daughter, Julie, for years, even though we had nothing to do with it because her father had, quote, finked. Had finked. Well, speaking of that, uh, we talked earlier about Jerome Robbins, the choreographer and director. He had named your mother and several others in testimony before that House Un-American Activities Committee. I have to think he wasn't very popular in your household. And yet, your stepfather ended up working with him in the Broadway production of A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Good story. Uh, First of all, my mother did teach Jerome Robbins how to jitterbug, and she dated him before he knew he was gay. So those are the two things that really bothered her more than almost anything else, that she taught him how to jitterbug and then he named her. But Frank Rich has this wonderful thing about form was dismally horrible. There wasn't a thing right about the show. Funny thing happened on the way to the forum. It just didn't have an opening. It didn't have a closing. It had nothing. So Hal Prince, who was the producer, hired Jerome Robbins to doctored the show before it opened on Broadway. But he was scared to death to tell both Zero Mustel, my father's best friend, Jack's best friend. Famous for Fiddler on the Roof. And Forum. And he, he said, how can we tell Zero that we've just hired Jerome Robbins to fix the show? Well, he, he went to Zero. He said, see, we had to hire Jerry Robbins. If you want to run, if you want this show to run and you want to make a living, we have to have a, a brilliant doctor like Jerry Robbins. So Z said, listen, it's okay with me, I suppose, but let's go talk to Jack, knowing, of course, that my mother had been named by Jerry Robbins. So they went into Jack's room, and Jack immediately called my mother, and he said, Madeline, they've just hired Jerry Robbins. I'm going to quit the show. And she said, this is a quote, Don't be a schmuck, Jack. If Warner Brothers called, you'd work for them, wouldn't you? Mm. So they hired Jerry, and on the stage was Jerry Robbins, Hal Prince, Zero, and Jack. And Jerome Robbins stuck out his hand to Zero, and Zero said, I'll work with you, I'll take your direction, but I will never shake your hand. That's how deep the blacklist years had been for these people. And how profound the scars were. Yes. Uh, What do you think people should understand today about the blacklist? I think what they should understand is that we have a constitution and we have a bill of rights. And my parents did not want to overthrow this government. What they wanted was to have the political freedom to believe what they wanted to believe. And I keep thinking today, oh, my gosh. If my mother could come back, she would, because nobody who went through what we went through as children or as our parents went through would ever believe that this kind of abuse of power and of political beliefs, at its, at its essence, the blacklist was anti-Semitic and it was racist. And to me, it's starting to show its ugly head again. 
I understand how it was anti-Semitic just because so many Jewish performers were on the blacklist. How was it racist? Because every black performer was on there, too. You had Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee and Harry Belafonte. I mean, when you look at the names now, as my mother scrolled through the book that named all of them called Red Channels. Yeah. She said, boy, that's a good book. I mean, I'm happy to be in that. Einstein was in that book. Talk about a cast. Talk about a cast. I mentioned that you are working on a film along with your son, Max. Just tell us briefly about what you're trying to capture. Well, we started this in 2016. And with the reason we started it, we started to reconnect with other red diaper babies in both California and in New York, just because we're all in our 70s. And Max said, Mom, we've got all those boxes of stuff from your mom. And when you die, who's going to know about this? Well, my mother wrote a really good book with Kate Mustel called 170 Years of Show Business. So we initially were going to do kind of a a tragic comedy thing on a funny thing happened to all these people on their way to stardom, the blacklist. So we went from that to gathering more interviews, and everybody in the world wanted to talk to us about the blacklist. So now we've got 60 hours of interviews with people who were gone, like my mother and Ruby D and people like that. And we have tons of information, plus us eyewitnesses, the only ones left. And we're not documentarians. So our issue is who is going to tell this story. And and we hope with all this information, somebody who's a lot more talented than I am or my son is at being a director and a producer will say, this is a good story and it hasn't been told. Lisa Guilford of Denver, remembering her late parents' actors Jack Guilford and Madeline Lee Guilford, who were blacklisted in the 1950s. Lisa's working on a film about her family's experience. Finally today, new music from a band that's been described in many ways, rock and roll bluegrass, jamgrass, a drummerless rock band. The band is Green Sky Bluegrass. The quintet won the 2006 Telluride Bluegrass Festival Band Contest. It recently announced a three-night run at Red Rocks this September. And this week, the band releases their seventh studio album, All for Money. It's been getting early praise from Rolling Stone and NPR Music. Here's a preview with their lead single, Do It Alone. Heaven's gonna pass you up for living life like this.
The song is Do It Alone. The band is Green Sky Bluegrass. Their new album is All For Money. It's out this Friday. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is CPR News. Probably you could take two